Hi folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Delighted today to be joined by somebody who's very inspiring to me, Josh Seiden. The reason he's inspiring is because he's got this book around outcomes. And, and for me in the design thinking world that I've been working in, and I've been trying to eat up my own dog food in terms of doing design thinking, there is these concepts that he simplified in a very small book, which is also helpful for me, around outcomes and how important it is to focus on the outcomes. So you'll hear a lot about that today, but you'll also hear the thinking around design and thinking about how you get to design, but also fascinating story of his career and how he got there. Because one of the key principles for me in design thinking is leaving your ego and expertise at the door and how he got into design and what he did his informative career, which was as a writer at college, and how he's now moved back into the writing and the teaching side it is fascinating as a journey. So iterative journey for him is reflective of the work he does. So enjoy Josh Seiden. Welcome, Josh. Thank you Thank for you. taking the time to come on the podcast. Wanted to just give the chance for you to tell a, the, the listeners a bit about yourself and maybe a story about how you got to where you are on this podcast here. Yeah. Or maybe not this podcast, where you are in your career anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I work these days as an independent consultant, uh, working with uh, teams that are mostly focused on delivering digital products and services. So simplest way to say it is teams that make software products, you know. I don't think I would have predicted that I would have ended up here. You know, I started in college, I studied writing. I didn't think I was going to go into the business world. I, I thought I'd become a writer. The world made other choices for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I ended up uh, in uh, San Francisco Bay Area in the late 80s, early 90s. And as one does in that part of the world, I fell into the technology industry and discovered I really enjoyed it. And uh, I got interested early on. I, I worked for a, a company, uh, an accessor, computer accessories company called Kensington. Kensington made trackballs and mice and bags and all kinds of, you know, accessories for computers. And we made some stuff that was really, really great. And we made some stuff that was not great. <laughs> I've worked on some stuff that was really not great. And I worked on stuff that was great. And, and I got really interested in kind of that problem of how do you make great stuff? You know, I, I guess I'm a quality oriented person. Like that's important uh, for me. And, and um, I discovered the world of design. I, I didn't study design in school. As I said, I, I, I studied writing, but I was hired in the early days by a design company company called Cooper, uh, founded by a guy named Alan Cooper. Alan is a, a brilliant individual and, and uh, somebody who is really sees the world in a unique way and is not afraid to, to take contrarian positions. And, and one of his positions at the time was that the mainstream design world didn't understand how to design for software and technology, that the mainstream design world knew how to design for print knew how to design physical goods, but they didn't know how to design software. And so in building his design firm, he was determined to hire people with no formal design training. He didn't want anyone with a uh, who'd been to design school. If he'd been to design school, 
He didn't want to look at your resume. In fact, he didn't want to look at anyone's resume. And so he put a test on his website. And uh, as luck would have it, I'm a pretty good test taker, which is something I'm good at. And I read his book. I did his test. It was a design test. I had to submit designs to solutions to two design problems. I didn't know how to use design software. I mean, I really, I didn't really know how to do this at all, but I figured it out. I took the test. I got an interview and I got a job there. And so I spent four years there. It was really my graduate school learning in the early days. It was sort of learning the craft of design, but it was really kind of making up what it meant to do design in the digital world with a, a group of weirdos like me. <laughs> you know? I love it. Self-declared weirdo. I love a start yeah. of a podcast like that. <laughs> and so that was really, that was really great. And it, my boss at Kensington and then Alan, they were people that I realized subsequently were, were people who were um, important teachers in my life. We can come back to that, but, but I wanted to plant that seed because your question is, how did I get here? And some of it was following what was interesting to me, right? And some of it was lucking into being in the orbit of some very good teachers, and so I worked in design for a while. I'm from the East Coast originally. And so I moved back after my kids, I, I got married. I, I went to the West Coast because I followed my girlfriend. I married her out there. I had, we had two kids out there. Our families are both from New York City. We moved back to New York when our kids were little. And then I had the opportunity to work as a designer in New York, worked as a design leader on Wall Street started my own design firm with a couple of partners. And uh, as I worked in-house, I've worked independently. I've worked in a small studio. You know, sometime around 2016, I decided that I liked the independent consultant's life best. And I would say that maybe maybe there's that's kind of maybe one stream. And then the other stream is I got uh, fortunate in um, 20, the early part of the 2010s, I, I met a guy named Jeff Gothelf. And uh, Jeff and I became collaborators and business partners. Jeff had a contract to write a book called Lean UX. Jeff was struggling to bring it across the finish line. And I was a reader on the book. And then we started business together while he was writing the book. And we started teaching the material in his book together. And we, we got a, a client hired us to train their global product development organization. We literally went around the world teaching the material together. And by the end of that world tour, we had this kind of deep mind meld. And we had, we had been, ex we spent months and months and months explaining, you know, really trying out the material in the book, figuring out the best way to express these ideas. And so he asked me to come on to the project as his co-author. And so I studied writing in college. I walked away from writing for a bazillion years. And then, you know, 2012, 2013, maybe it was, we published Lean UX together. And so, boom, suddenly I find myself an author. It is fascinating for me because having read your book uh, on the outcomes side, you know, the, the, there's a, a real skill to be able to translate technical into written, yeah, making it simple. And particularly with the topics you're talking about, Lean UX, and then, you know, when you look at your other book, Sense and Response, to make that simple and easy to understand. So, so in theory, writing skills did come into play there, plus your love of 
getting together with Jeff and, and working. I'm interested in that combination because you always talk so fondly about him. So what was it about the chemistry and the writing that was so good? We're a good collaborative pair because we have complementary skills. Jeff is very action oriented, right? He's a real do it, do it, do it person. You know, his favorite phrase, his motto for life is ship it. <laughs> That's ship it. I'm just going to, yeah. Okay. Yeah, just with a, with a P. Uh, he's really about putting stuff out in the world. And I am much more slow moving, deliberative person, right? I'm really somebody who's going to work it, work it, work it, work it, work it. And so th there's a really healthy tension there between those two forces, right? You can just, you know, put stuff in the world without a gate. And, you know, some of it will be whatever, you know, and you can also never put anything in the world. And then where are you? So I think like having those two kind of attitudes is, is really useful. And then, and then we have a lot of respect for each other. You know, we, we argue in a really productive way. And I think we're sort of very aligned philosophically. And I think we both really believe in the power of iteration. You try it and you try it and you try it and you try it and you keep trying it. And uh, it gets better. And generally speaking, it gets better and better and better. It's not a, always a straight line, but no. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to bring it back to the, the world tour. Seems like there's a t-shirt made, you know, different cities on the back. I can just uh, envisage <laughs> it now. But, but there was something about the practice leadership because there's something coming in here about you went out, you taught, and there's nothing better than teaching others yeah. to, to hone a message to get down there. And so the power of iteration was not only in how you were teaching it, but it's about living and breathing it as well. So, yeah. And the feedback you get when you're doing that in front of a live audience, we had a, um, we probably taught that so that we had a, a two day class that covered the material that, that became the book and, um, two full days. Uh, so it was a lot of time we spent with folks and, um, we had a feedback form that we asked everybody to fill out before they left the room on the second day, right? If you, if you, you know, you had to fill out the feedback form in order to get the class materials or something. I don't know what it was. And the, the feedback form is, you know, we asked for an overall rating just so that we can have a benchmark. But then we asked them one thing that we should keep doing, one thing that we should change, right? And one thing that was unclear. That was our feedback, which is if you're from the agile world, you kind of recognize that as one of the structures agile people use as a retrospective, right? But so we asked, you know, what should we keep doing? What should we change? And, and what was unclear? And that feedback was really good because it helped us identify like, I mean, sometimes you just learn that stuff when you're teaching it. You, you explain an idea and then all the hands in the room go up and they say, you know, Josh, what the heck are you talking about? You know, I get that all the time. <laughs> But the other thing that was really interesting was to hear Jeff explain something. Hmm. And then, you know, we would take turns at the front of the room. He would teach one part of the material one day, and then I would teach it the next day. And we would sort of riff off each other. And together, we would sort of learn how to say something and kind of take the best bits from each of our points of view. And um, when I joined the project, then we had then spent, you know, months and months on the road together. 
Jeff had, we both joke, he had 300% of the book written. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> and so we, we were in Boston and uh, both of us uh, lived at the time in the New York area. He's, he's subsequently moved. but And we took the train down from, from Boston to New York. And on that train ride, we just went through all of the material and we created the outline for the book. We're like, okay, here's how the book is going to work. And because we'd had all that material loaded in our heads, we were able to do it on that one Acela from New York to Boston, you know. It it's was a source very, of many an inspiration, Acela, isn't it? That's that yeah. four-hour journey just seems to be about the right time to finalize stuff. Yeah, four hours locked in a tin can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> With average service, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs> But it's a very powerful moment, you know. Mm. I want to go back to the uh, the, the hiring piece because this is fascinating, and it's it's almost like you've lived your life with design principles embedded already. You know that I don't need design experience, or somebody's been trained to be a designer, and therefore it goes back to almost leave your ego and expertise at the door, come in and do something, you know, fresh and new. So. What are the principles that you hold? Because you talk about them in the outcomes, number of the principles, but what are the principles you hold in your work that if you were to say in a minute, what are the three things that, that, that you hold? What are they? I would say like the most important thing for me is to be humble. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't mean that in like a self-negating kind of humility. I mean like a, like a legitimate humility. Like I heard somebody recently describe it as right-sized know what you know, acknowledge what you know, and credit what you know, but also know and acknowledge what you don't know. And be really honest about that. You know, when I was hired at Cooper with no design background, right, I think it, it would be easy at that moment to say, we're inventing something completely new, you know, and we weren't. We were, we were taking something old with a lot of tradition and we were trying to figure out how to apply that in a new context. And so there were some really radically new th problems that we had to solve. But there's a lot of traditional wisdom to draw on for those solutions, right? And so how do you, how do you navigate that terrain? You know, it, it requires a certain amount of humility and introspection. I'll tell you another story. The first job, that job at Kensington that I got, I got because I was an unemployed bartender living in San Francisco um, who <laughs> knew how to play. Well. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I knew how to play with a computer. I was lucky in that I'd grown up with a computer in my house. I, I, I was a little bit of a geek. And um, I had a friend living in New York at the time who was a drummer. And he had a job at Kensington. He was a tech support representative. He answered the 800 number. Kensington was moving to the Bay Area. And my friend called me up and he's like, look, I'm a drummer. I have to stay in New York. I'm pursuing my music career. I'm not going to California. I think you'd be perfect for this job. You should apply. And I did. I got the job. And then he said, as he was handing off to me in that first week, he said, look, there's a project I've been pitching at the company. The company was doing all of its tech support. We did return returns and repairs. We did all of that stuff on a four-part paper form. And so a huge amount of our time was spent you know, doing status check phone calls. People call, where's my 
mouse. And we go to the paper file cabinets and we go through it. We all had networked Macintoshes on our desk, but we still had all this paper stuff. And my friend said, look, here's the book. He handed me a loose leaf binder with a project proposal. And he said, we need to write a database system. I've been trying to get them to let me write this database system. Here's the project proposal. You do it. And I said, I, I don't know how to do that. And he said, yes, you do. <laughs> you do. <laughs> he said, he said, the key, the key is when they ask you, if you know how to do it, just say, yes, I do. Yes, of course. You know, I continued the pitch and eventually they let me do it. I nodded confidently and said, yes, I do, because I believed I could figure it out. I don't know. There's a story in there about navigating the humility. Like I didn't know how to do it. I knew I was going to have to figure it out, but I knew I could figure it out. And I did. And then I wrote that system. They used that system for five years until they replaced it with a professionally created system. And the interesting thing was I loved doing it. And I went to my boss, who was a great boss. And I said, that was so fun. I loved doing that. I want to go study software engineering. And he was a software engineer. And he said something really interesting to me. He said, you should not be a software engineer. He said, that's not where your skill lies. He said, you're going to be interested in stuff that is not heads down. It's heads up working with people. And you should not be a software engineer. If you want to do it, I'll support it, you know, but you shouldn't do it. So he was, he was one of my early important teachers. I think there's there's so many things in here that um, to unpack. So the humility and the, the I think some people under, understand humility as I'm rubbish at this, I'm not good at this. But actually, the humble thing when you defined it, which is I know this, but I don't know this, and I'm going to willing to explore. So there's something about exploration in here that and the iteration piece, yeah, with a focus on you know Jeff's bit about getting it done you know, and shipping it out the door. But then there's also something about, you know, this exploration of coding and and how you, you came across that. And I, I want to come back to the, the outcomes piece because the yeah. book that you've got, maybe tell the, the listeners a bit about the book because it, it had a profound impact reading it for me because it's, it's simple, but in some ways very, very difficult to execute. So tell us a bit about the book. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So the book is called Outcomes Over Output. And it's a short book. Jeff and I, uh, a few years ago, started a publishing company to print what we called short practical business books, right? So we discovered that uh, most people in business have a stack of books they wish they had, they could read sitting on their corner of their desk right? I've got my stack right here. And, uh, but then the weird thing about books, right? Is that you read a book and you're like, mm, that should have been an article. Yeah. And so we created a, a publishing company to, to do books that, you know, nobody says that should have been an article. They say, that's exactly what that was. It was a, a one train ride from New York to Boston read. Uh, anyway, so outcomes in 2011, I, 2010, 2011, I discovered the work of Eric Reese. Eric uh, wrote an important book, I think, called The Lean Startup. And uh, yeah, it's a great book. And Eric says sort of the key question in, in technology is not, can you build it? Because engineers can build amazing things. The question is, should you build it? Does anybody want it? And sort of hidden in that question is, you know, is the software valuable? Does it create the outcome that we think we're going to generate, right? You shouldn't build software that just 
runs, right? We need to build software that, that creates value and, and creates an outcome. And sort of as I lived in that world, thinking about outcomes, we use the idea of outcomes in Lean UX in the first book. And we've used it, the, the book is in its third edition now, we've used it subsequently, and we've continued to teach it. It sort of became clear that outcomes was an important concept that was sort of poorly defined. It was sort of fuzzy. What did it mean, outcome? People talk about outcomes, but they just mean it as a synonym for results. So in sort of developing the idea, I came to understand that the definition, if you could define it, an outcome is a change in behavior that creates value. A change in human behavior that creates value for the, the user, the customer, the organization, the, the planet. So what I loved about the book, Josh, was... It really challenged my thinking. As a leader, I'm focused on outputs. That's what I can control. And the outcomes, it's more nebulous. It's more, it's, it's almost linking that to the how might we. So it's, it's great for the mind that goes like that. But in terms of the writing them, it is, it's very tricky to do. Tell us a bit about the process to get that. Cause that is one of the things in the book you say it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it is difficult. It's difficult because we're shifting from, you know, kind of concrete instructions, like I'm going to write a report or I'm going to make a product. We're shifting from that concrete framing to a much more abstract way of thinking about things. But you can actually use it at two levels. You can use it at a high level leadership level, and you can use it at a kind of a more detailed level. At a high level leadership kind of level question, you can just ask, in fact, I had a, a CEO of a, a bank uh, I was talking to you recently. He said, look, I don't get into the details. When people come to me and they want to spend money, I say, okay, fine. What outcome is this initiative going to create? What will people be doing differently if we spend that money? And so it can be just, you can use it as a thinking experiment, right? At a very high level. He said, he said, look, I'm the CEO. I don't get into the details. <laughs> yeah, I love, but I love that framing because it's going back to leading with questions, yeah. leading into there. What I was fascinated because we're going through our products review and an audit at the moment. And so therefore we're, we're thinking about that and, and we've got multiple outcomes yeah, that we want. And it's for us, it's about the focus of about which are the critical outcomes that, that you want. Tell me a bit about that process because you, you go through the stages, don't you, to get to, to those outcomes? Yeah. I mean, the, the more detailed version of it, it starts with what we call the user journey, right? So what are people doing today? What are they trying to do, right? And how can we help them do the things that they're trying to do in a way that creates value for them and for us? Right. So what's the user journey? And, and you can start just by telling a story. What are they doing today from start to finish? Right. And then you may understand as you tell that story, there may be some things that are very obviously valuable. Right. Well, the user comes to our website, they sign up for our, um, email newsletter. Great. We know that's valuable. Right. There may be other things that they're doing on their journey that are not obviously valuable. And, and it's, we have to try to understand it. That's the hard work of, of product discovery and the hard work that product teams need to do. And then there's that second, once we've kind of understood that journey, we can ask the question, well, how do we get them to do this thing more, right? You see on the, <laughs> on the web, everywhere you go, the, the first thing you see when you hit a, a website for the first time is sign up for our newsletter. 
I was like, okay, I, I understand what you're trying to do, but that's not really valuable for me in the first 10 seconds. I'm not going to sign up for your newsletter. Right. And so we've got kind of two questions to deal with, like what's valuable for us. What's there's more than two questions. What's valuable for us? What's valuable for them? What's the intersection of those value points? And then how do we get people to do that? Right. And so, yeah, what's valuable for you signing up? What's valuable for me? Not signing up. So not so much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and I suppose that goes back to one of the questions I had going through the the, the book as well, which is obviously design thinking, the supposedly Steve Jobs quote, which is, you know, focus groups, what people don't know is what we're trying to get to in design uh, there to something that's an un- unaware needs in there. And therefore, the observation and the research is probably going to drive some of these outcomes. I assume in my head that the research is going to feed that. Yeah. Right. Because what you're trying to figure out is is sort of, uh, the question is sort of has two parts. What are people doing, right? Which we can figure out with observation and analytics. But there's this harder question, which is why are they doing it? Right. And so for that, you, you actually have to make contact with humans and try to understand them by talking to them and, and connecting with them in, in some kind of human way, right? So what are they doing and why are they doing it? And uh, those, those questions are really the, the kind of key to identifying the important outcomes, right? And so what's, what's hard is that we spend a lot of time pretty far away from our users and customers, right? And so we don't know the answers to these questions very often, right? And Steve Blank, who is, you know, I think the other foundational thinker in the lean startup movement, Steve Blank always talks about this idea of getting out of the building, right? The answers aren't here with us in the conference room. The answers are out there with our customers and our users. So we have to get out of the building and figure out what they know and what they're trying to do. So almost you're talking about co-designing outcomes, which for me is in some ways is the ideal thing. And that's what we're talking design thinking. For those who don't know, can you talk a bit about the agile versus design thinking? Because it's always that big question, what's the difference and how it relates to the outcomes? Yeah. So the first book, I I mentioned this, the publishing business that Jeff and I started. The first book that we published was Jeff's book called Lean versus Agile versus Design Thinking. Because as he was teaching lean methods, people would always come to him and say, well, Jeff, you're teaching us lean and our engineers are, are learning agile. And those people over there, they're teaching us design thinking. Like, which one should we do? Right? His answer is they're the same. They're the same thing. They all rely on this idea of, you know, rapid iteration to test your ideas. And so they have different flavors, right? Agile is engineering centric and the methods are really grounded in the the problem of making high quality code. And design thinking comes from the design world and has some of the, you know, design world culture in it. And lean is a kind of a optimized business process background, you know, but ultimately it's the same idea, which is that we're trying to figure out, right. We're trying to navigate complexity, right? Humans are weird and unpredictable. It's hard to figure out in advance 
if our solutions are going, what, what they need and if our solutions are going to work. So how can we rapidly iterate through our ideas to try them out and to see if they work? I think that there are different flavors of the same approach. Yeah. I remember seeing Eric Reese on a, um, on a, a webinar trying to explain it and crystallize it. I think you've just done a better job than I think they did in there. I loved his, his answer, but that was simpler for me to, to understand. So I want to come to some of this because what we're talking about is complexity. And But in your thinking, your work, there's this piece about sometimes outputs is enough. If you've got certain things that you need to do, and it's the same with design thinking, we don't need to do deploy design thinking into everything. Certain things are just given and we just need to get on with them. Do you want to explain a bit more about that? Because that's where some people get confused about what they should be and how they should be deploying a lot of these skills. Yeah. yeah I think, you know, it's just sort of that, it goes back to that idea of humility and leadership is, is when we know the answer, we should just do the thing, right? You know, like there's some problems, we know how to get people to log onto a, a website. Okay. If we don't love it. But it works. You have a username, you have a password, you forget your password, you click a link, you get a recovery. We, we know how to do that. Why spend a lot of time discovering the best way to log on to a website, right? Sometimes we don't know the answer though. And it's the interesting kind of differentiating value add stuff where we don't know the answer. And so when we don't know the answer, we have to go discover the answer. And so outcomes are a good way to help us frame those problems, right? Because instead of framing the problem in terms of, well, we're going to make this thing, we can specify the thing in great detail, but we could be wrong, right? Might not work. We might specify this thing, spend a year building it, put it in the world and discover, oops, if you've worked in tech for any while, any long, any period of time, you've had that experience, right? And so instead of specifying the thing, can we specify the value that we're trying to create, right? And outcomes let us specify, you know, it's almost like a test-driven design, right? This is the condition we're trying to create. We're trying to get people to do X and we'll know we've won when people are doing this thing. And so, but we don't know the answer yet. So we have to try a bunch of different solutions, right? And so navigating that complexity, navigating that uncertainty, outcomes are really good when we don't know the answer and, and we're not confident that we can predict the answer. So that moves me on to, to thinking that one of the other things in here is leading and lagging indicators of whether you're achieving something. Cause that's, that's another piece that you know, I've, I've been practicing it for a while, but I, when I see somebody in an expert environment do this or a coach who knows why we're doing it and how to do it, reminds me of your daughter's spaghetti moment, but we'll come back to that in a second. So, but, <laughs> but there's, talk to us about leading and lagging indicators and how this impacts right. on what we're just talking. Well, when we're thinking about outcomes, right, there's some big outcomes that are valuable to us, but they may take a while to develop. Right. So for example, let's say we want to get people to buy more cars from us. Okay. Most people buy a car. Okay. People who buy a lot of cars might buy one every three years, but most people buy cars a lot less often than that. Right. So how do I measure, right? If my new television ad is driving car sales, it's hard, hard, hard to do that. Hard to make that leap. Okay. What I want are faster indicators, right? I could have a very successful ad 
that I don't see the results in sales for months and months and months and months. What would be a leading indicator of that? Well, if we look at the user journey, what's the story of people buying a car? Well, maybe the first thing is they look up the trade-in value for their existing car. So what if my ad is encouraging people to look up the trade-in value? Right? Right. Well, okay, that's faster, right? That's a, that's a leading indicator, right? I can get results from that much more quickly than I can get results from just tracking car sales. So that's the basic idea of leading indicators is I'm trying to get, I'm trying to navigate uncertainty. I don't know the answer. I'm trying to figure out if my methods are working towards my ultimate goal. And I want to, and, and I have a hypothesis that if people do this leading thing, ultimately it will lead to this, lead to this thing that is long, you know, valuable, but slow to measure. Right. And so I break down that story. I tell that story and I look at the early steps in the story for my leading indicators. And I loved your example also with the mattresses. When people lie down the mattress, it's a leading indicator that they're potentially going to buy if they lie down with their partner on the mattress and bring the partner along. I'd love that just so there's a build in terms of knowing. So, right. Right. And listen, it's hard to know those things that just because I've rattled this off, right? Telling that story about who your customers are and knowing which one of these steps in the journey is the reliable predictor of value. If you're spinning enough plates on those, then in theory, you're getting towards. So I'm hearing it's, it's more than one. It's, it's multiple leading indicators to, to give you a better read about whether people are, are tracking against that. Yeah. Love it. So spaghetti story. I've got to get this in because I love this story. And just so the, the, the context is on, on one of your uh, pieces that you were writing, you were talking about your, your daughter and the spaghetti. Tell us the story because I, I think it reiterates the why, which is so important to what we're talking about here. So my daughter moved out recently and um, she and I enjoy cooking together. Um, she's not an expert cook. She's learning to cook. She's doing a great job. One of the things we cook together from time to time is spaghetti carbonara. And so she called me with, uh, for, with a question and I was describing the process to her. And, um, I realized that the thing about spaghetti carbonara, right? Is you take the hot spaghetti out of the pot and you turn it in a mixture of, of egg and cheese and, um, the hot spaghetti cooks the eggs. And so she asked me a question when she was cooking. She said, okay, first I'm going to cook the spaghetti. And then when it's done, I'm going to go make the egg mixture. And you're like, no. And, 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 and I, 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 I sort of had this moment of panic. I was like, no, no, no. The egg mixture has to be ready first. And what I realized is there's a difference between sort of knowing how to do something and knowing why you do something. Right. And so like that, like, I, I, I think about that a lot actually, because I do a lot of training work with teams. And so like, I'm always trying to navigate between the sort of detailed methods of how, and also conveying the importance of why, like actually the spaghetti has to be hot, right? That's the why, right? I love that because there's so many of us that do jobs and we do how, but we never think about the why. And it's uh, as one of your commenters on that says, cooking has a lot of analogies that you can use to, to bring in. So I love that. 
Josh, I've come to the end of our conversation. And again, fascinating for me. It's prompting. It's almost like a self-coaching session for me. This, so appreciate you you going through this. But I, I want to come to the three questions I always ask at the end here. And the, the first one is looking at small, memorable moments that have shaped your career as a leader that maybe we talked about, but things that have made a big difference is the first question. I had a moment when I was working at Cooper, there was a, a, a terrific leader at the company, a guy named Pat Fleck, shout out to Pat. And um, we were facing a very, very challenging moment where it was unclear. I was in my first role as a manager, first time I was working as a manager. And Pat said, look, operating a consulting company for us right now is simple. We have to sell the work, we have to do the work, we have to hire and we have to train. Those are the things we need to do. And he went to his group of managers. Most of us were first time managers. And he said, you, you're hire. You, you're train. You, you're sell the work. You, you're do the work. Hmm. It was a small company. Yeah. And that kind of like cl confident clarifying of this complex landscape was a real model for me of like how to respond to challenging moment. It was emotionally complex. It was none of us quite knew what to do. And, you know, whether he was right or wrong, it was such a beautifully simple framing and it gave us all so much confidence. So to me, that was a real model of what a good leader can do. I've been listening to Essentialism by Greg McEwen and he, he folks, he gives a similar example, which is powerful as a leader. How can you be so simple? And as you say, even if you're wrong, <laughs> it's the simple message that people can follow and work with. I love that. So second thing is, could be linked to this, but if you had one thing you could disrupt in leaders today, in your teaching, your coaching, what would it be? I mean, I think it would be coming back to what we talked about earlier, this idea of humility. As leaders, what do we know and what do we don't know? And how can we be authentic with our ourselves, with our peers, and with the, the folks who report to us and say, look, this is important problem for the business to solve. I don't really know how we're going to solve it. And I'm going to ask you to solve it. What's the best way to train our people? You know this. You know the methods. You go train people. Figure it out. It's critically important. I don't know how to do it. I'm not a trainer. You go figure it out, right? So to be able to take that position of sort of confident humility is hard. We often uh, express our confidence by having snap answers. Yeah, I know and I have knowledge. Confident yeah. humility. There's a there's a book in there, I think, coming out. Yeah, I think that's that's a good one. Yeah, I love it. I like it. So coming back to the the one thing, what's the one leadership habit that's non-negotiable for you? Uh, I think it's, you know, trust. I think it's trust, you know, I th and I think that that humility feeds into trust. You know, if I'm able to say, like, look, I know this. Trust me, I know this. Hmm. And oh, by the way, I don't know that. Trust me, I don't know that, <laughs> right? Like, like, I think... Making and keeping your commitments and to the people who work for you is is critically important. And I so I think, you know, the behaving with integrity, creating trust, and doing what you say you're gonna do. I love to me, that. that's that's it's non negotiable. Simple. Essentialism again in terms of simplicity. So Josh, it's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you for coming on. 
if people want to find out more about you, find out more about your books, your daughter's spaghetti carbonara, where would they go? Yeah. <laughs> you can go to my website. It's uh, joshseiden.com. You'll find me there. Amazing. Thank you, Josh. And uh, well, I hope to see you soon. Maybe, maybe over spaghetti carbonara at some point, but thank you for coming on today. Yeah. All right, Colin. Thank you so much. That was Josh. Fascinating conversation. And again, we can start to look at a number of the principles he talks about. And uh, what I love is the relationship between him and Jeff. Jeff on the ship it and him on the the wider thinking in there. And, and he was described as the product whisperer in a couple of quotes uh, around his work. And you can see it, you can hear it in his voice and his thinking around how he mulls, noodles, coaches, people on the why and the how of what he does. And therefore, it's it's powerful stuff to, to think about. And as I said in the recording, it felt like a coaching session for me because I was starting to think about our products, how we operate in there. So uh, yeah, excellent episode. Anyway, folks, I'll look forward to welcoming you back onto another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very shortly. <laughs>